Well, we're talking about prayer today, and I pray for snow. Um, we got a new snowblower this year, and I've been kind of disappointed because we haven't had a lot of snow, so I can't wait till this afternoon to get home and use that thing. Don't you dare any of you clean it off for me, okay? I, I want to do it. Anyway, we're going to talk about prayer. Mark 11, if you have your Bibles and want to turn to that. In Mark Twain's classic, Huckleberry Finn, Huck tries to learn to pray from Miss Watson and the widow Douglas, but the results aren't satisfying. Huck says, Miss Watson, she took me in the closet and prayed, but nothing came of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get it. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. It weren't any good without no hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. And then in another section, Huck says, I sat down one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. I says to myself, if a body can get anything they pray for, why don't Deacon Wynn get back the money he lost on pork? Why can't the widow get back her silver snuff box that was stole? Why can't Miss Watson fat up? No, I says to myself, there ain't nothing to it. And most of us know what it's like for God to answer some prayers but also we know the disappointment when he does not. I remember when Billy Graham's daughter was undergoing marriage problems, the Grahams flew to Europe to meet with them and to pray for this couple, and the couple ended up getting divorced anyway. If Billy Graham's prayers don't get answered, what's the use of my praying? I'll be honest, it's hard to preach on this. There's so much mystery associated with prayer. There's seemingly contradictory messages in the Bible a student at Princeton once asked, what is there left in the world for original dissertation research? And Albert Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. So if Einstein had questions and confusion, I'm not sure we're going to clear it up in 20 minutes. But let's see what Jesus says about here in Mark. Now, we're into the last week of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross. And right before our text has been the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And I'm going to pick it up right after that triumphal entry in verse 12. It says, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Three main sections here. Jesus uh, curses the fig tree, and then he goes into the temple and cleanses, into Jerusalem and cleanses the temple, and then concludes with this teaching on prayer. 
First of all, why does Jesus curse a fig tree? This is the only miracle in Mark that brings death. In the other miracles, Jesus is helping people or He's healing them. Here, He kills a, he kills a tree. Now, He's hungry. He wants something to eat, but there's nothing on this tree, so He destroys it. One commentator calls this a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. Another said, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. In other words, Jesus lost his temper and kills this tree. And the tree's innocent because it's not the season for figs. It's not his fault. There's no figs on it. Now, last week, Jesus spits in a man's face, and then he calls a friend a devil. This week, he kills a tree and then commits some vandalism in the temple. Who is this guy? I mean, Jesus wouldn't do that. Well, maybe Jesus does some things that we're not, maybe we've got him pegged a little bit wrong. And I think there's some things about him we've yet to learn. So why does he kill this tree? It says he was hungry. I'm not sure I buy that. If he could feed 5,000, surely he can feed himself without the help of a silly tree. So obviously there's more going on here. In the Old Testament, one of the metaphors for Israel was a fig tree. Hosea 9.10, for instance, says, When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree, speaking of Israel. So when Jesus sees this fig tree, it could be representing Israel. It also says that it was in leaf. In other words, it was full of leaves. It was green. It looked healthy and had, looked like it had the ability to fill the hunger of a person in need. It looked like it could produce fruit, but Jesus curses it. Now, Jesus has just come out of Jerusalem from the temple, and then he curses this tree, and then he goes back to the temple the next day, and he commits some vandalism in the temple. Now, the temple, like the fig tree, had a lot of activity going on. It looked very much alive with lots of people. It was noisy and busy. They were selling and buying. It was the center of Israel's faith, the place where God and people met. But something has gone terribly wrong with the temple. When Jesus enters the temple area, he throws tables and benches. He doesn't allow anyone to carry their merchandise through the temple courts. He gives this stern lecture. It looks like he's mad. So Jesus, he's mad twice. Well, Jesus wouldn't get mad, would he? Yeah. And it's apparent what's going on here. The fig tree without fig symbolizes the temple, a temple that's not producing the fruit that God intended it to. Both the fig tree and help and temple look healthy, they look like they're alive, they're signs of life, but it's a false appearance. Some years ago, actor Sean Penn played the lead role in a film about a man on U.S. prison's death row, and the movie highlighted the anxiety of someone condemned to die, waiting out his time while being incarcerated, and the last and probably saddest ritual of the man on death row is that final walk from his prison cell to the death chamber. You know the name of the movie? dead man walking. He was alive, technically, still breathing, but in essence, he was on the way to death. He was going to die. The temple was a dead man walking, still standing, still alive, you know, still activity, bustling with noise and, and everything, but the end was inevitable. Three chapters later in Mark, Mark 14, Jesus said, I will destroy this man-made temple in three days. We'll build another, not made by man. He's going to make a new house of worship. Why? Because the old one wasn't producing like God, the fruit that God intended. So the new temple would be Jesus himself, as we learn, and then later on it would be us, the church. You and I are the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and the Holy Spirit lives in you? So the old temple was not bearing fruit. It's going to be destroyed. Jesus is building a new one. Now, one of the popular applications, if you're old enough to remember this 
uh, some of the, in older days of the church. One of the applications of this cleansing the temple is Jesus doesn't want us buying and selling in the church building. I remember this when I was growing up. You know, if a singing group came in, like the Ball Brothers or something, they can't sell their records or tapes in the foyer. That's, and that's what Jesus, what Jesus made. They were money-changing in the temple. Um, so if a group would come in, they could sell it out of their bus or out of their van. They, could, they just had to do it outside the building because we are not supposed to have money-changers in the temple. Only problem with that application church building is not the temple. We are the temple, the people of God, and that's where God dwells on earth. Now, this vandalism by Jesus, this cleansing took place in the outer court. In other words, that's the court of the Gentiles where the non-Jews could come and worship. And the result of all this selling and activity going on is the Gentiles were effectively not allowed to worship or to pray. So these money changers were robbing the nations of a chance to come to God. So the very institution designed to bring people to God was keeping people from God, and money was more important than evangelism. Hmm. That might be relevant today. Sometimes the church designed to bring people to God isn't doing its job very well, and sometimes money is more important than evangelism. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the new temple will be a house of prayer for everyone. All nations are welcome. You and I are at that temple, and, and are we bringing God to our neighbors and bringing God to this community? And, and people are hungry. Are we feeding them in, in the name of Jesus? In other words, the temple had a missionary mandate and had lost it. And just as Jesus curses the tree without fruit, He curses the temple without fruit. Now, another main theme and characteristic of the temple is Jesus said it's to be a house of prayer. So Mark uses the fig tree incident both to prophesy the destruction of the temple and to affirm the power of prayer. Now, Peter notices that the tree Jesus cursed had died, so it was a miracle, and Jesus basically says, well, this is nothing. You, you can say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea and it'll happen. The new temple is going to have the power of God at its disposal. It'll be a place where God is present and God's people are petitioning Him and God is responding. And Jesus says, ask God and He'll do it. Have faith in God. If anyone says and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what He says it will happen, it says it'll happen, it will happen. And I've always had a hard time with these promises of Jesus, you know. He says, whatever you ask for, I'll give it. I've not found that to be the case. I wish Jesus had said something like this. Now, guys, I'm bestowing on you the gift of prayer, and you must realize, of course, that humans cannot have perfect wisdom, so there are some limits as to whether your prayers will be answered or not. Prayer operates more like a suggestion box. You know, spell out your request clearly to God. I want you to pray, and I guarantee that all requests will be carefully read and considered, but you may not get everything you ask for. I'd be more comfortable with that. But here's what he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, it will be yours. Now maybe Jesus is being, uh, using hyperbole here, uh, overstatement. We do it all the time. In fact, I just did it all the time. A young man in love does it. 
I'll do anything for you. I'll go to the moon for you. You know, overstating to show his love. But even if this is hyperbole, it's still a clear message that God is going to respond to prayer. Things will happen when God's people pray. So at the very least, Jesus is telling us the prayer of faith means praying with boldness. You have to put your confidence in the power and goodness of God. Jesus said, and do not doubt in your heart. The word doubt means to waver, you know, in your convictions or lack confidence in God. The same word is used in Romans 4.20 where Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. Now, Abraham waited how long for the promise to be given to him? 25 years. We want our prayers answered in 25 minutes. Jesus wants us to pray boldly because God will hear and God will act. James 1 says those who doubt are double-minded whereas faith is single-minded. The double-minded has mixed motives. His mind and heart are not wholly turned to God because of their desire for other things. So a single-minded person trusts fully in God, is wholly committed to His service. Those who believe God will act and want God's will to be done, those are the ones who will pray. See, Huck Finn, I think, is like I am sometimes. Sometimes we pray and we just wonder if it's really going to do any good. Jesus says, pray with boldness. Second, the prayer of faith means praying in surrender. Boldness is acknowledgement that God will hear and respond. Surrender is acknowledgement that God always knows best. One preacher said, in short, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we should have asked if we knew everything He knew, everything God knows. And that's really prayer of faith. I pray boldly knowing He'll respond, but I also pray in surrender knowing that He knows what's best. Sometimes prayers get answered in ways we could never predict. For 15 years, the mother of Augustine, her name was Monica. Now, Augustine was one of the great Christian minds of all time. But for 15 years, she prayed for him because he was not a Christian in his early years. He was actually kind of a wild party animal, very immoral, dabbling in all kinds of exotic philosophies. His mother was a Christian and continued praying for him, but he continued to indulge himself and live far from God. One time, Monica prayed all night long. She stayed up all night just to pray to stop her son from going to wicked Rome because she was afraid of what he would get into when he got to Rome. But Augustine went off to Rome anyway. God did not answer her prayer. It was on that trip to Rome, however, that Augustine became a Christian. So God denied Monica her prayer. She prayed all night in order to grant what she'd been praying for for 15 years. Pray boldly, also pray in surrender. Understanding God is good and powerful, but He's also wise. Third, the prayer of faith means praying with kingdom-centered motives. Being single-minded and not doubting means we are seeking to be in line with the will of God. In the Lord's Prayer, we don't say, My kingdom come, my will be done. No. James says you pray that way, you're praying selfishly. It's His kingdom come, His will be done. And the context of this prayer in Mark is to pray for the nations that they will know Jesus. That's God's will. And if you pray for the nations to know Jesus, it will happen, and it is happening. There are some things we can ask for unconditionally, uh, such as forgiveness. We know that's going to be answered because that's God's will. If you ask for it, you'll get it. If you ask for compassion for others, and that's what... That's what God's wanting, and He'll give it to you. That's what praying within the will of God does. And if you ask for opportunities to witness to your neighbor, for instance, that's what God wants to, and He'll give it to you. Praying in faith means praying with kingdom motives. God's will be done. Praying in faith also means doing our part. 
we don't only pray in faith, we also act in faith. Sometimes we can use prayer to avoid responsibility and say, okay, I prayed, God, you take care of it so I don't have to do anything. No, James says faith without works is dead. God's not going to save the nations if his, all his people do is pray and do nothing about it. God's not going to save my marriage if I don't do my part and get, my, get some help. So God wants to partner with us, His will done through us. Prayer includes His sovereignty and our participation. Prayer and work work going together, and one without the other is like trying to eat with one chopstick. It just doesn't work very well. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, If you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. His fifth teaching is our relationships on earth affect our relationship with God. If your relationship with the church is bad or a Christian brother, your relationship with God is going to suffer. Our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship. If your relationship uh, with your spouse is not very good uh, or, or with your parents, it's hard to have a good relationship with God. Paul tells husbands, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Your marriage will affect your prayer life. So there are some conditions to prayer. But it still doesn't deny what Jesus says. Mountains will be moved. God will act. I can tell you of marriages that, marriages that have been miraculously, miraculously restored because of prayer. I can tell of healings because of prayer. I can tell you of coincidences. I can tell some amazing conversions, and you can too. Doug Coe has a ministry in Washington, D.C., and he became acquainted with Bob, who is an insurance salesman. And Bob became, an, a Christ, became a Christian and began to meet with Doug to learn more about this new faith. And one day, Bob came in to this meeting with Doug, and he was all excited because he read these words of Jesus, ask whatever you will in my name and you'll receive it. And Bob said, is that true? Doug explained, well, it's not a blank check. You have to take it in the context of the teachings of all the scripture. But yeah, it's true. Jesus answers prayer. Great, Bob said. I'm going to start praying for something. I think I'll pray for Africa. Well, that's kind of a broad target, Doug said, so why don't you narrow it down to at least one country? All right, I'll pray for Kenya. You know one in, in Kenya? Nope. You ever been to Kenya? Nope. Bob just wanted to pray for Kenya, kind of out of the blue. So Doug made an unusual arrangement. He challenged Bob to pray every day for six months for Kenya. And if Bob would agree to do that, and nothing extraordinary happened in six months, Doug would pay Bob $500, kind of a spiritual wager here. But if something remarkable did happen in those six months, Bob would pay Doug $500. And if Bob did not pray every day, the deal was off. So Bob began praying every day for Kenya for a long time, Every day, nothing really happened. And then one night, he was at dinner in Washington, and the people around the table explained what they did for a living, and one woman she said that she helped run an orphanage in Kenya. Yeah. Bob saw $500 sprouting wings. But he could not contain his curiosity or his enthusiasm. He started barraging this lady with questions about this orphanage. It happened to be the largest one in Kenya. And the woman said, wow, you're obviously interested in Kenya. Have you ever been to Kenya? No. Do you know someone in Kenya? No. Well, why are you so interested in Kenya? Well, someone's paying me $500. And anyway, she asked Bob if he would like to visit Kenya and tour the orphanage. 
Bob was so eager, he would have signed up and gone that night. He did go a little while later, and when he arrived in Kenya, he was appalled by the poverty, the lack of basic health care. When he got back to Washington, he couldn't get that place out of his mind. He began to think what he could do, so he started writing large pharmaceutical companies, describing to them the vast need that he had seen, and he reminded them that every year they would throw away large amounts of medical supplies that went unsold. You know, why not send them over to this orphanage in Kenya? And some of them did. The orphanage received well over a million dollars worth of pharmaceutical supplies. The woman called up Bob and said, Bob, this is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts because of the letters you wrote. We would like you to fly you back over and have a big party. Will you come? So Bob flew back over to Kenya. While he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country. And this president offered to take Bob on a tour of Nairobi, the capital city. And in the course of the tour, they saw a prison. Bob asked about a group of prisoners there, and he, said, he was told they were political prisoners. Bob said, that's a bad idea. You should let them out. Bob finished the tour, flew back home. Sometime later, Bob received a phone call from the State Department of the U.S. US government. Is this Bob? Yes. Were you recently in Kenya? Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What would you say? I told him he should let them out. The State Department official explained that the department had been working for years to get the release of these prisoners to no avail. Normal diplomatic channels and political maneuverings had led to a dead end. But now the prisoners had been released, and the State Department had been told it was largely because of Bob. So the U.S. government was calling to say thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this very important task? So Bob, who was not politically connected at all, he was an insurance salesman, boarded a plane once more, flew back to Kenya, where he prayed and asked God to give wisdom for the leader of the nation as he selected his government. You want to move a mountain? Try prayer. Father, these words of Jesus are almost unbelievable. It is hard to believe that the creator of the universe will act simply because we ask. We believe, and yet sometimes we doubt. So help our unbelief. God, help us to be single-minded. Help us to pray in faith, to not waver in our commitment to you. Help us see that when we pray, mountains will move. Maybe not in our timeline. Maybe not even in the way we envision it but you will act. Thank you for this amazing promise, this amazing fact that we can even talk to you, and when you do, we do, you hear and respond. It's in Jesus we do pray. Amen. This morning as we continue our worship, we're going to show a little video that talks about how even whenever we pray and sometimes we don't understand what God is doing, in light of all that and in light of our circumstances, he is still good. And we began the process to adopt Bellata in June of 2012. 
So we're closing in on three years that we've been trying to pursue him to be our son, but we were made aware of him when we brought home our daughters. So I have felt as if he was my son since August of 2010. And through that, God had put an ache on my heart for Belitza. There was no question about that. And it says, we're told that he puts the lamp, he sets the lonely in families, and he had done that in our family. So I prayed continually that this would come to be. I would say the past six months have just been the hardest part of walking through this because it's it's been so quiet. There's wasn't any paperwork for us to do anymore. There wasn't anything that we could do on our end. And we were really just dependent on other people and on the process. So I would say over the past six months though, especially that I have grown very weary in my prayers and been frustrated sad, angry, um, every emotion that you could possibly think of, and especially as we have approached this very end part of the process because things have taken two months at a time and three months and four months at a time. And so I was finding a hard time just figuring out what to pray or what to even say because a lot of times I just wanted to ask why, why it was taking so very long and I decided to just spend some time really in quiet prayer and it was during that time that he just really spent time reminding me of who he is and although I was weary he is not and although I don't know he does and how good he really really truly is and how good he is to us and to our family um, and so I get onto an Instagram account and the first thing that scrolls across to me is, but if not, he is still good. And that was my focus the morning of that all of these things are not, all of these things I am not, but he is, and he is good. And lo and behold, that's the day we get the call. where you're at or what you're in. He is almighty and just and beautiful and powerful and gracious and loving. He is good. God, we thank you for this day time in which we could come together and worship you. God, just now as we prepare to partake of the emblems, I pray that you will remind us of why we do this. God, sometimes we don't understand why you do the things that you do. But we know that you are good. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for each and every one of our sins. God, just now as the cup and the loaf are being passed, I pray that you can humble our hearts, that we can partake of these emblems in a way that is pleasing to you. 
God, we love you so much, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. He's who makes all this possible. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. God, again, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this time in which we can pay back a portion of what you have given to us. God, just now as the plates are passed, I pray that this is not another time of just giving money, God, but it can be another act of worship to you. God, I pray that you bless the gift and the giver and that you multiply these offerings that they may be a sacrifice to your kingdom for its benefit. 
God, we love you so much, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. Again, it's because of him that all of this is possible. God, we worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Sing this with me. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived what he's prepared for us. But on the cross, once and for all, he showed the world. A glimpse of his great glory, his love displayed, grace and justice now collide, his ransom paid. 